you had been born in 17th century London and uh, happened to find yourself in a lineup out the front of the royal printers there, there in London, um, in queue for your 1631 version of the King James Version of the Bible, you would have made your purchase there in the lineup and uh, taken your new text home, pretty excited, fresh off the pretty, you know, newly invented printing press, and uh, got home, flicked through Genesis, edified by what that had to teach you, made your way to Exodus, and as you were going through Exodus, you would have come across the Ten Commandments. Start off with, you know, thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Uh, Then you come up and you say, honour your father and your mother, and, you know, this is good, this is good stuff, this is what you're taught in church, I'm glad to see the printing press has got this stuff right, you know, this is the word of God. And then you make it all the way down to the seventh commandment. Seventh commandment of the 1631 King James Version of the Bible, and you would have read this. Thou shalt commit adultery. So you do a double take. Word of, you know, um, did I misread that, or is this the word of the Lord? Nope. Thou shalt commit adultery. 1631 KJV. Sure enough, there it is. That was the 1631 King James Version of the Bible. It actually became known as the Wicked Bible in history. Uh, And the King of England gave a reproof to the uh, master in charge of the printing press, Paul Bloke. I I was looking online. You can buy... They they burnt the majority of the manuscripts. Uh, You can buy them online now. There was one going for $90,000, an original manuscript. The point is this. If people make errors like that, in the transmission of our Bible, how on earth can you and I be really sure that we know what we hold in our hands today is true to what was originally written back then? Well, welcome to part two of our four-part study on the doctrine of bibliology here at Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. Uh, Today's message is entitled, The Bible on Trial. And we're going to be looking at ideas of truth, transmission and textual criticism today but collectively our assignment over this month uh, of bibliology uh, of February is to try and answer this question why should I believe the Bible that is our collective assignment as a whole and just as a a disclaimer um, bibliology you know the study of the Bible what we have here at the best of times can be a little dry Um, and what we're doing today is, is just information overload. I don't, there's no expectation that you'll get this today. It's, it's a trampoline. It's a springboard to go home and get into it some more if you're so inclined to study on. Um, so don't uh, feel the pressure to try and get everything down today. Certainly all of these slides and, and everything are going to be online uh, as well. So um, hold on as we go through this because I know that uh, it's going to be hard. It's, believe me, it was hard to try and put this together. Um, we will have also on Facebook, we have a Facebook page for Calvary Chapel Newcastle and a uh, side page from there you can get to for Bibliology, for what we're doing here, to throw in your questions. PM the uh, Calvary Chapel Facebook page and uh, we'll address questions as the best we can uh, on there for you. So, again, if you have notes, pens, papers, phones, whatever... Uh, take notes as we go that that's a really helpful way to not only get the content down 
but also to um, remind yourself of questions because if you don't have questions coming at it today, uh, I wonder how hard you're listening. It's it's going to be provocative and uh, a lot of um, a lot of stuff to get through. I don't know. Maybe sometime in the next couple of weeks we could do even a DVD night here, like the Christ Files or something, to watch um, about the different manuscripts. Keep keep watching Facebook. We'll see how we go with that. Um, but for now, uh, today is the Bible on trial, and I guess the first section we're going to move through here, I've titled, You Can't Handle the Truth. We started last week's message, our first week in Bibliology, with the, the, the topic of asking the question, why should I believe the Bible? And between you know, singing songs, um, talking about Jamie Oliver and oversharing with MKR, uh, we really looked at three things last week. We dissected the question itself why should I believe the Bible then we looked at the doctrine of revelation and then we looked at the doctrine of inspiration we looked at them very quickly Uh, the Bible claims to be divinely revealed from God to man and the actual text of scripture itself claims to be the divinely inspired word of God remember the authors were not inspired it was the text itself and that's fine. The Bible claims that. It was a declaration. We didn't argue it last week. We just That's what it says. Let's just acknowledge it for what it says. But we can say whatever we want. You could tell me you're in the Bahamas right now on the beach. It doesn't make it true. Anyone can say whatever they want. The question is, is it true? Is it true? Well, much like last week, we uh, talked about this love-hate relationship we have with words uh, today. And it's the same with truth. We have a love-hate relationship with truth today because we live in a a day and age where to say that you know the truth is just synonymous with arrogance. It's a bold thing to say, I know the truth. Because you're isolating those who don't hold to that truth at that particular point. That's why we have mantras today like, truth is in the eye of the beholder. What's true for you is true for you, not necessarily true for me. That's cool. I respect your right to believe what you want as long as you respect mine. But nobody lives like that. Nobody lives as though truth is really in the eye of the beholder because, frankly, there's a reason why you locked your doors last night. Because what happens when the truth that your property belongs to you is different to the truth of old mate who's walking down the road, sees an opportunity with a slight crack in your door and says that actually your stuff belongs to me. Whose truth is true at that point? What is the true truth, Francis Schaeffer used to say, that old apologist? Well, that's why we have court systems, isn't it? to go to court, to find out whose truth is the true truth. Because we all know that truth exists. Truth is fixed, truth is objective, truth is absolute. That's why you have a jury and a judge who were not involved in the incident, and if they were, they are no longer allowed to be involved in that particular case because they need to remain objective. Truth is objective. Answering that question, whose truth is more true is why we have judicial systems, it's why we have courthouses, it's why we go to trial, to find out the true truth. What's the true truth about this text today? About our Bibles here? And here's the real kicker. Because if the Bible was true, and if you could be shown that the Bible was true, and you had to admit that it was true, would you believe it? 
And if you said no, as I've had people say, then what does that tell us? It just proves our whole thesis last week. This is not about the question. It's all about the questioner. I was at a camp, 160 students speaking there over the course of a week. Probably 99% of them were not Christians at all. On the cusp of going to uni, just, you know, living the life. The idea of this in their way was not cool. They had all these questions. We went through every question they had as best we could. They had no more questions at the end of the week. Come Friday. No questions. And they said, David, I quote, we don't have any questions. You've made your point. We just don't want to believe. Jack Nicholson to Tom Cruise. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. Do you want answers? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. I changed the tone because it's frankly quite sad um, when people are not wanting to go where the truth is. Okay? Why should I believe the Bible? You should believe the Bible if it's true. How do I know the Bible's true? How do we know that what we have in our hands is even true to what was supposedly revealed and inspired last week that we talked about? Let's go to trial. Heavenly Father, it is this morning not with irreverence that we come and ask you, ask these kinds of questions today. As though uh, the clay can actually look at its potter and, and say, what's up? You know, as Jesus your son declared your word is truth and it is like an uncaged lion that needs no den of lambs like Calvary Chapel, Newcastle to stand up for it. We just unlock the cage and you roar for yourself. Your word is truth and it does not need us to apologise for that, but you, the judge, the jury, the just, the justifier, have chosen us. Those from the docks of guilt, your people, the church, to be the vessel in this age through which the roar of your word goes out, to give a reason for the hope that we have within, and it is to that end now, Father, that we are going to commit the better part of an hour with all we've got, with our will, with our minds, with our attitudes, with our hearts. We can watch movies for much longer, Lord. This is the very thing by which we are supposed to conform our lives Give us grace and strength in how to get through this. I pray I need it. And I know my friends and brothers and sisters here need it all the more as well. Amen. Alrighty, let's move. Calling the witnesses to stand. In the Bible on trial. An apologist by the name of Frank Turek came up with a really neat way to argue for the truthfulness of the Bible. It's a catchy um, way that's what I really like Frank for he's a genius at catchphrases you know palm card kind of stuff if you ever get online and, and have a listen to him it's just catchy you can really put this into your head so that when you're talking to friends you can go oh yeah that's you know ABC the acronym whatever it is that you, you need to remember that particular argument for the cause of Christianity well one of his arguments is called the six E's I've adapted that a little bit and expanded it uh, <laughs> Uh, no, you know, Frank probably touched on all of these anyways, but I've just tried to break it out a little bit more and, and taken it to the tenies. And if you 
can commit these 10 E's to memory. And look, you probably can't commit all of them to memory. Commit some. Just commit some. The E's, the E's. What were the E's? Why do I believe the Bible? What were the E's? Uh, Go through them. What were the E's? Commit some of them to memory. And this is a great way to bring to the fore when you're having these conversations with friends about why it is you believe the Bible to be true. So 10 witnesses or 10 reasons which all start with E that claim or that argue for or that testify to the truth of the Bible. Uh, These are existing manuscript evidence, early records, eyewitness accounts, embarrassing testimonies, expected occurrences, excruciating devotion, extra-biblical documentation, enemy referrals, excavated remains and everyday experiences. Frank's was two to seven, I filled out the rest. Now, to go through all of these 10 E's uh, today, here, this morning, would literally require thousands of years' worth of logic, evidence, and experience. Remember those three categories from last week that we talked about. We don't have a thousand, couple of thousand years, clearly, so, because uh, that's how long this text has been around. Uh, so, what we're going to do is really just, just touch on the first E, uh, and again, this is a springboard to go away and to look at some of this stuff more. So the first E being the existing manuscript evidence. And we're going to only look at the New Testament for the sake of time. It's not that we don't have answers for the Old Testament. Maybe these are some good questions to throw on the Facebook site. But uh, I believe that this is the first and foremost important of the E's that we need to know how to answer anyways. And particularly with the New Testament. Because if you get the New Testament in the bag, you've got the Old Testament in the bag. Because who's in the New Testament? Jesus, the apostles. What do they do? They draw on the Old Testament. And what is the New Testament but the progression of the Old Testament story? If you went and watched Star Wars uh, Rogue One and all you had was A New Hope, it wasn't that hard to work out that was a prequel because it was the same story. It's like that with the New Testament. They just work. Okay. Anyway, we're we're only going to focus on the New Testament now. And this is where people come, first of all, if they're going to make a serious assault on the validity of Christianity, it's here. So it's worth us spending some time. And to kick this off, how do you, how do, you do this? I, I don't know. Um, this is such a dry, statistic-driven, almost lecture. How do I present this in a way that's interesting to, to engage people that otherwise wouldn't be maybe that interested in it because not everyone likes to read um, books like that on old books. <laughs> but... Uh, how do, I, how do I share this? Well, I thought, you know what, let me, let me tell you about my experience. So it's a legitimate category. We talked about that last week. Let me talk you through my experience of, of dealing with this witness in the witness stand. Until about midway through last year, 2016, not that long ago, I was, I was preaching in the pulpit, you know, before then, here in Newcastle. Until about midway through last year, I'd never actually done a serious, and I mean serious, serious study on bibliology. I'd read plenty of popular books, watched plenty of debates and YouTube clips and sermons and all the rest, but I'd never really gotten rigorous with my um, study of bibliology until about midway through last year when an opportunity came up to, cond- to do a research paper in this field. And I chose this, of all of the E's, the evidence for the New Testament, the manuscript evidence. Because if you remember back last week, again, if that was what was originally written... It was only the original text that was inspired. Only the original text that was inspired. That monk who was copying down the transcript or whatever in the 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 12th, 13th, 14th century, the boys who put together the NASB, 
uh, last century. They were not inspired. It was only all scripture is God-breathed. Remember? They had noustos. It was only the original authors that were moved, Peter says, by the Holy Spirit. So how do we know that this, my English, 21st or 20th century English translation, is at all reflective of what was originally inspired? How do do you know that what you have on your smartphone is the same stuff? I wanted to know how to answer that question, and I was so sick and tired of hearing so many stats from every man and his dog who had an opinion on this. Don't go to Dr. Google, please, for this one. So I started my research, and I went about this maybe the wrong way. You know, if answering this question is like learning to swim, then it's like I put on my zoggles, my little floaties, got my little kickboard, held my nose, jumped off the end of Nobby's break wall in the middle of a raging storm with a 10-foot swell. Because I decided not to read any Christians at all on this. I went after the biggest, baddest, toughest, best world-class scholars who are non-Christians, who use all of their brilliance to assault the integrity of the Bible. Because I was, my attitude, um, which is a good attitude, but you've got to be careful uh, that it's not misplaced boldness. My attitude was, if I have the truth, nothing is going to mess with that. And we do not need to be scared of what anyone has to say if we claim to know the truth, because we have it on our side. That was my attitude. So I went after it. I went after the truth in uh, a dangerous place, and I got smashed. I got belted. I got thrown against the rocks. I got dragged down underwater. I was kicking. I was screaming. My floaties were ripped and torn, and, you know, just the the memory of a kid that once was, you know. Down on the bottom of the water, on the bottom of the ocean floor, under the water, zoggles filled up, could not see a thing. It, was, it wasn't good. I don't even think I talked to people about this. Here's some news, Tez. Tez. <laughs> there you go. It was rough. It was rough. But by God's grace, by God's grace, I didn't drown. I still had a little bit of breath. I found my footing. And when you, when you get smashed on a wave, you know, you're like, you just need to know where the down is so you know where up is and you can push up. Did that. Found it. Made it to the surface. Got air. Dragged myself out by God's grace. And how did I do that? Well, I looked up online. All of the people that these guys that I was reading were talking about. They were referring to old scholars. They were referring to various institutions and things like that. I got online. I found these people. I found whoever was alive, all of these professors, I emailed them. I emailed professors in Ireland, England, Egypt, Israel, Germany, Europe, the USA. I found the names of institutions. I found the world's, um, the world's standard for the catalogue and collection of all of the entirety of the New Testament manuscripts. I got their names, I got their email addresses, and I talked with them, anyone who would respond to me. Some of them were pretty aggressive towards me based on my thoughts. Others were really, really, really sweet and helpful and well into their 90s, really, really quite old, some of these people. Lovely, lovely people and some not-so-lovely people. I loaded up Bible software. I compared my own statistics with what the critics were saying in the original Greek 
and in the various translations. And I listened to many, many, many debates, some good and some pretty terrible. And I say all of this for no other reason other than to, to share my lesson with you because this is, this is really one of the lessons I learned through all of this. Just because you read a book by a guy or a girl who knows so much more than you, who has dedicated 50 to 60 years of their entire life into the study of the manuscripts for the New Testament or the Old Testament or the Bible in general, who run faculties and world-leading institutions at the Ivy Leagues at the best of the best in Oxford and Cambridge, which is where I was talking to people, does not make them right. How arrogant of me to say that, right? I don't even have my MA. I'm a candidate, for goodness sake. Before I summarise my research, let me just tell you the end of the story. At the end of it all, the greatest challenge I faced was not whether or not I should believe the Bible. That wasn't even a question in my mind. The greatest challenge I faced was the fact that the criteria for the research paper was 14 pages. I had in excess of... 60 to 70 and I had to cut it back I got a dispensation and I handed in 50 pages it was so hard to show my professors how much truth there is backing this and, and not only that but showing the egregious errors of some of these people and it's not because of the facts it's because of their conclusions to the facts and we're going to get there so what is this whole process called of mining through all of the data for the New Testament? It's called textual criticism. It is like a jigsaw puzzle. The first thing you come face to face with when you engage in the discipline of textual criticism is the very uncomfortable fact that we do not have one single original manuscript for any of the New Testament or Old Testament texts or books in existence at all today. Not one. Last week we talked about how it was the original that was divinely revealed and inspired. We don't have the originals today. Why? Because we don't have the dudes who wrote them either. They're, they're long gone. They're dust. They're probably not even dust. I don't know what you turn in. Uh, no, I, I don't know. It's the same with the, uh, you know, the clay, the papyri, whatever it was, the vellum that was written on. Things degrade. We don't have the originals. That's not a scandal. But... The same is true of every other ancient literature. This isn't the Bible's problem. It's ancient literature's problem. Okay? You can go around the world now and you can find uh, all of these manuscripts in various museums, uh, universities. We even have some of these manuscripts here in Australia at Macquarie University. One of them is called um, P91, Papyri 91. It's just a, a catalogue in reference number and it's a fragment from the Book of Acts. Uh, chapters 2 and 3. But if we love the truth, then it would be a mistake to say, well, unless I have the originals, then I can't know for sure what the Bible said. Because if that were true, then in the name of consistency, we should shut down every single ancient history department in every single university and institution around the entire world. Fire all the professors, burn all the books which have shaped civilization today, because they're all predicated, the, the, the value of them, the meaning of them is all built on the copies. So in the name of consistency, we should be doing that. But that's just not how history works. That's not how trials in a court of law work. If we say we can't know anything for sure unless it's presented before us, then you've just knocked out the whole judicial system because the judge, the jury, were not there 
at the time of the murder. That is why we have this forensic process that they go to. What is the forensic that they go through? What is the forensic process? You're reconstructing the truth of a past event in the present with certain processes and procedures so that you can know with confidence and certainty what happened back then. To say that we cannot know the Bible because we don't have the originals in existence today is akin to saying, a judge saying, I cannot know whether or not you murdered that person because I wasn't present to see it happen, even though you were found half an hour later with motive, with a weapon, DNA all over you, a corpse next to you, and nobody else around for 200 kilometres. We don't function like that. Let's give the Bible a break as we come to it now. And textual criticism is really quite a complex process. It is an incredibly complex process. But for our purposes today, I'm going to use a really uh, reductionistic analogy, and that is a terribly ugly North American bird jigsaw puzzle. Thanks, James. We're going to think about textual criticism like a jigsaw puzzle. Now, I know that a lot of you guys are jigsaw puzzle enthusiasts, and you have your own ways of doing your jigsaw puzzles. You know, some of you like to group together all the colours and you like to, you know, I, I want to come in and you'll slap my hand. you say, well, look, got my colours here, my colours here. And you get all the colours and you bring them together and you make your picture. Others of you are more like the border bullies and you've got, you just want to get all the borders done. You want to get the framing. And once you've got the framing sorted, then you might, you know, do a hybrid methodology where you bring in the colours and start working that or you just want to go for it and work your way in. We all have our, you know, nuances. Well... All of that, no matter how you want to approach putting together your jigsaw puzzle, they all at least have a two-step process. The first process is to get the pieces out of the box, to pour all of the pieces out of the box, to gather them all together. That's the first step. The second step is then the process of putting them together, but irrespective of whether or not you do colours or the borders, you have to pick up each piece and analyse it and work out where it goes. So basically that's the two steps. Get the pieces out on the table, work out what you're dealing with. The second step is take each piece, analyse it, compare it with the other pieces and then work out where they go. That is our approach this morning to textual criticism, this two-step process. Of course the analogy isn't perfect because we don't have the original text so we don't have our ugly bird picture on the front of the box to double check with. And again the analogy breaks down because all of these pieces hopefully make up that picture but with the Bible manuscripts we've got more manuscripts, some aren't so good, they don't fit, etc., etc. So, you know, that to the side, this is our approach, this is our analogy to keep in our heads as we go through this process. But before we take a look at the New Testament jigsaw puzzle, I want you to consider a few other documents from history, a few other jigsaw puzzles from ancient documents. When you first empty out the jigsaw puzzle of the pieces of Homer's Iliad, which was a mythological poem um, about you know, the Trojan Wars. You've probably watched Troy, the movie online, Brad Pitt. Looks pretty good there, right? Um, and you've got, you've got him doing his Achilles thing, the, the great warrior Achilles. You've got uh, Hector. Uh, that was all in Homer's Iliad, all in Homer's writings there. It was basically their, the Greek mythology, all their you know, polytheistic gods. It was kind of like their Bible sort of so to speak. It had Zeus, it had um, Poseidon and Apollo and all of those guys in there. It was written about 700 BC, back in the days around Noah, roughly, uh, when the Assyrian Empire was at its peak. Um, yeah, 
well, maybe on its way down about then. But when you empty out all of the pieces of Homer's Iliad out of his jigsaw puzzle manuscript box, what do we have on the table? I found that we have 1,757 copies or portions of manuscript copies, the earliest scrap of which comes 400 years after the original. This is going to be different to what you may have read in your apologetics books at home or if you've done some reading on bibliology um, because I was trying to work with, with the latest and greatest um, numbers here. and this is, So this is baselined at August 2016, these, these, these numbers. But the first full copy we have of Homer's Iliad is 1,700 years after the original. This is the, as close as we get to the Bible, by the way, in terms of second place behind the Bible. What about another one? Caesar's Gallic Wars. Those history books about the Roman emperor, Caesar, and his campaigns, military campaigns against the barbarian tribes of Gaul to the north of Rome around 50 to 60 BC. Well, I found that we have 249 copies or portions of manuscript copies, the earliest of which was written about 1,000 years after the original. Again, I'm emailing people who are the world experts in, in these ancient Homer manuscripts that are reading these in the original languages and things like that. So I'm getting this data from them. I know you all just love the classics and, I, and you just probably want me to keep on going with this. Um, you know, so we've got Herodotus, Livy, Tacitus, Sophocles, um, but for the sake of time, uh, let's just put a pause on these ones. Let's now move to the gravy. Let's get to the chips. How does the New Testament of the Bible stack up? Well, let's first of all empty the contents of our New Testament out. That's step one. And uh, pretend that we've just gone through and sorted all of those out. Put them up on the table the right way. Seeing what we're working with. This is all of our manuscript evidence for the New Testament. What do we have? Well, you could probably divide all of this data into maybe three different sections. The first section would be the Greek. We are working with a whole stack of Greek manuscripts. How many are there? As of 30th of August 2016, I managed to find out that we currently have 5,851 Greek New Testament manuscripts or portions of manuscripts. That is the language in which the New Testament was originally written, Greek. So that's five times more than second place with Homer's Iliad. But keep in mind that these numbers of Homer's Iliad, that 1700, that was all of the translations, that was all of the references in other people's you know, journals or um, commentaries or whatever. It wasn't necessarily a fragment of, an orig- of, a, of a copy of a copy. It was translated fragments and fragments from other sources that re- referenced it. All we are talking about here is the Greek, the original language in which this was written. 5,851, that's only the Greek. And that number would have changed since August uh, 30th, 2016, because we are constantly discovering new, uh, uh, new manuscripts buried in archives of old libraries or literally digging them up in the Middle East today. 
That's why, again, if you have an apologetics book, you will have a number in there. It's probably more like 5,200 or 5,400. Um, you know, Norm Geiser's books, um, they're about then because they were written 10, 15, 20 years ago, some of those. These numbers are changing. That's the quantity of Greek manuscripts in our jigsaw puzzle. And I've put them up on a timeline here so that you can see where these Greek manuscripts fit into history. Again, that's in a lot of information. Don't, don't worry about it. I'm just saying I wanted to highlight the difference here, at least visually, that what we are dealing with in the Greek alone for the New Testament is insane in terms of evidence. The oldest of the manuscripts, or the closest to the original, is actually a fragment from the Gospel of Mark that is believed to be dated anywhere from 85 to 100 AD, so within the first century. But wait, wait, wait. That's not actually officially published yet. It's still going through a verification process. It's relatively new. We're talking in the last five, last decade that's, that's come out. So the actual, or well, the earliest officially published, verified fragment of the New Testament is what is called P52, Papyri 52, the John Ryland's fragment, which paleographers, those people who date, who go through and you know, date the, um, the age of these manuscripts, they date it anywhere from AD 90 to 150. Again, remember Jesus, for want of a better year, was ascended roughly 33 AD. The fall of Jerusalem, 70 AD. John was writing his book of Revelation maybe around AD 98, the, before the close of the first century. And this is suggesting that this papyri comes from AD 90 to 150. When did John write his gospel? We speculate, we get, sorry, we have good reason to believe that he wrote his gospel between AD 80 and 90. So what does all of this mean? This means that at worst, we have 70 years from the very first officially recognised manuscript of the New Testament, and at best it is the very same year, the copy. Nothing else comes close to that. And what's so special about P52? P52 is exciting because it was discovered in Egypt and published in 1935, but prior to its publication, there were a lot of liberal scholars, men like C.K. Barrett, Rudolf Boltman, who were adamant that John's gospel was not written by the Apostle John, that it was written actually in the mid-2nd century. And this was peddled in all of their books, and then P52 comes up. Guess what happens? They have to rewrite their story. The point is... Like I was saying earlier, don't believe everything you read. I'm not saying that they're wrong. In fact, a lot of the time, what I was reading in some of these, these books by some of these liberal scholars was bang on. And we're going to talk about this in a moment. It's not actually what they say that's the problem. It's what they don't tell you. We'll get there. P52 killed the theory. By the way, every time we dig up something, it's just validating the text of Scripture. I have never heard of or read about any credible discovery or excavation that has ever graded against what the Bible says. But I bet you, you guys haven't read about the ones that so clearly do reinforce what the Bible says in the mainstream media. Secondly, our second portion, after we've worked with the, the Greek, is trying to work with the translations. How many translations do we have aside from the Greek today, in existence today? 
Well, if you count them all up, we have about 20,000 manuscripts, 20,000 manuscripts of the New Testament translated into various languages like the Latin, the Syriac, the Coptic, the Ethiopic, the Gothic and Anglo-Saxon, on and on and on we go. And why do we have so many translations? We have so many translations because what did Jesus say before he ascended? The Great Commission. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, to make disciples of all the nations, literally every people group. So just like the mission organizations today, like Wycliffe Bible Translations, who go around and do translating of the Bible in various countries of the New Testament and the Old Testament and things like that, that's what they were doing. This is like a first century early church missionary translation society getting the gospel out. So even if we didn't have any of these Greek manuscripts, we could piece together, this is fascinating, you could piece together the entire New Testament as we have it today from only the translations. And again, these translations go right back near to the first century themselves. So when you add the 500 5,851 Greek New Testament manuscripts to the 20-some thousand translations of the manuscripts, we have in excess of 25,000 manuscripts or portions of manuscripts for the New Testament alone. This picture shows it all. That's not even to scale, by the way. I wanted to change it, um, but it took me so long to do. (laughs) In paint. Somebody help me out. The small circle in the middle represents the original box, while the dashed line represents the gap of time from the original to the earliest known manuscript copies that exist today, which are the solid black areas. Again, that massive black area, which is the New Testament, is totally not to scale. It's just that you wouldn't really be able to see the other ones if I didn't do it like that. But wait, there's still more. There is, you probably think, I can't take no more. Hold on. We have, in addition to the 5,851 Greek manuscripts, in addition to the 20,000-some translations of the New Testament, patriistic or early church or church father attestation. We have over 1 million quotations from the church fathers of the New Testament from the early era right through to the Middle Ages. Over 1 million quotations from men like early on, Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John, who was a disciple of Jesus. We're talking pretty close. We've got writings from people like Justin Martyr, Clement of Alexander, Jerome. These guys wrote commentaries, they wrote sermons, and they referred to the New Testament and the Old Testament as they went. And in, in so extensive is their quoting of the New Testament itself that, in my estimate, the world's best textual critic of the 20th century, Bruce M. Metzger of Princeton University declared this, so extensive are these citations that if any other source for our knowledge of the text of the New Testament were destroyed, they would be sufficient alone for the reconstruction of practically the entire New Testament. I've heard one guy say that there's only 11 verses missing. So that's it. We've emptied out all the contents. We've seen the different Greek translation Church father, attestation. Nothing else in all of antiquity comes close to the volume of manuscript evidence of the first E that we have for the Bible. I hope 
I'm beating this horse and it's getting into your head. That's why I have people like Professor Dan B. Wallace, who, again, my estimate is the best alive today textual critic, evangelical scholar from Dallas Seminary. He says this, New Testament scholars face an embarrassment of riches compared to the data of the classical Greek and Latin scholars and what they have to contend with. Likewise, eminent scholar, the late F.F. Bruce of England, stated that there is no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth of good textual attestation as the New Testament. Again, I'm beating this drum and I hope it's clear. Even if you don't believe in the revelation or the inspiration or the claim that the Bible is the word of God, that's fine. What you cannot deny is the very truth that this is unprecedented and unparalleled in terms of its documentary evidence compared to anything else that we know. That's just an empirically verifiable fact that you can go find and put in front of yourself today if that's the way you're inclined. There is no equal. And I hope you're impressed. You know, it's really impressive stuff, right? But you shouldn't be convinced yet. Because it doesn't matter if there are one million pieces in this jigsaw puzzle. If none of them fit together. And this is where scholars and Christian apologists need to be careful how they present this information. Because we, we love saying how much we have, and we do, and it is impressive, and we're going to see why that's a good thing. But quantifiable facts without any context are meaningless. What would it matter if I had 50 witnesses in a court of law come to the dock and say, I'm a witness for David and that car crash, and every single one of those 50 witnesses gave a different story? Whereas the person who you know, I was going against had one witness and it corroborated. He's going to win, at least on the witness count doesn't matter how many we have. Quantifiable facts is not the end game here. It's a good start. We need to move beyond the quantifiable and qualify what we have. Quantification, qualification. All we've done is empty the box. That's all we've done. We've just emptied our jigsaw puzzle. Don't even know if it is a jigsaw puzzle yet. We've quantified them, now let's qualify them. Quantification, qualification. Quantification, qualification. The two-step process. Let's bring this all together. Stick with me. I know you're as pumped as I am. No drinks, no halftime oranges. Let's keep on going. Let's put the pieces together. Qualifying the New Testament manuscript evidence. Here we go. Okay, like I said, all you jigsaw puzzle enthusiasts, you have your own game. You have your own method to your jigsaw madness. You want to go the colours, you want to go the border bullies. However you want to do it, that's fine. Let me tell you that there is actually method to your jigsaw madness and it matters. We don't have time to go there. But how you actually want to go about that, the, the colours, the borders or whatever, how you actually want to bring together the New Testament manuscripts, that method, that approach does matter. If you want to talk more, I'm happy to share my paper with you if you'd like or, or get on Facebook and ask the question. But all of that said, every method has at least this in common, like we said earlier. It takes a piece. There you go, there's a border right there, and there's a red piece. It takes a piece, piece by piece, and it analyzes them, and it sees whether or not they'll fit together or whether or not they'll work. You have to analyze every piece. So irrespective of your method, that's where at least you have to start. And as soon as you start doing that, what happens? You run into these very scary things called variations that Christians get beaten up with all the time by somebody who's done a little bit of reading that isn't a friend of Christianity. 
As soon as we start the qualitative process of trying to piece the puzzle, all of the manuscripts together, we find that there are these things called textual variants. There are differences in our witnesses and how they tell their story. Well, we can handle a few variants, sure. I mean, how much are we talking about? Current estimates predict that in the Greek New Testament alone there are 400,000 textual variants. Nearly half a million. Okay, it's a lot of variants. But hey, the more manuscripts you have, the more variants you're going to have. If you have one text and no copies, you're not going to have any variants. So it's kind of given that the the Bible would have the most variants compared to everything else because it has the most documents to have the most variants. But hey, it's still a big number. So some of these world-class scholars say things like this, and I quote, there are more variations among our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament because it's so high a number, it's so hard to try and quantify or qualify how much there is in terms of those variations that they don't even want to talk about the numbers. They just want to make comparative statements like, guess what, we have more variations in the New Testament than we do have words in the New Testament. And that is absolutely correct. There are just under three times more variants than there are words in the New Testament. This is looking grim. How can we actually piece this together? And it almost makes you think, well, we could never really know what the New Testament says if every word could have had three different variants, right? That's the way this is presented. In fact, let's look at a graph of that if it's not already up. It's grim. But while all of that is true, it is entirely misleading. And it, this is the kind of stuff that, um, again, I was just getting smashed off Nobby's trying to swim. This is, just, this is the kind of stuff I was getting hit with. You see... Again, it's not the fact that we have 400,000 variants that's the problem. It's the, f- it's the factors that are left off. It's not what they say, it's what they don't say that's distressing here, that is so misleading. Because, I mean, what's the whole issue with variants? With 400,000 variants, what's the beef? What's the problem? The problem is they're variants. Nobody likes variants. If you have different variants, then you don't have the same story. How can we believe it? We can't put a jigsaw puzzle together. They don't even fit. That's what's wrong with variants. We don't like the fact that there's differences. But what is, what constitutes, by the definition of whoever made up this number or counted, what constitutes a variant? You need to know that before this means anything. This is a vacuous statement, kind of like love is love. What does that even mean? Let's move beyond Twitter and let's actually get to zone two of a reasonable conversation. And if you want to go further, we've got nothing but time and I've got nothing but books to share with you. What does this mean? Well, here's a definition of a textual variant. A textual variant, Dan Wallace, a textual variant is simply any difference from a standard text, i.e. a printed text, a particular manuscript, etc., that involves spelling, word order, omission, addition, substitu- substitution, or a total rewrite of the text. So what does all of that mean? All of that means is that one letter in one word of one verse in one chapter of one book across 1,000 manuscripts would be 1,000 variants. The same misspelt word duplicated all the way throughout would be all of the variants. And it, it, the point is... There is, we need to understand the criteria of what actually constitutes a variant here. If John is spelt with two N's, 
all the way through a book 60 times and one N in 60 times in another, that's 120 variants. Any alteration, no matter how trivial, no matter how many times we find it, is counted as a variant. And there's basically two types of variants, two types of variants to be reductionistic here. We have accidental variants and intentional variants. What are the accidental variants? They are slips of the pen. Maybe a scribe was tired, Mr. Lyon, Mr. Page. But don't forget, these scribes were handwriting. Gutenberg's printing press wasn't until the 15th century. Xerox didn't invent the photocopy until 1949. We don't have an office works down at the local Greco Forum there. And also, to try and think about this stuff properly and not understand the history is to not do this any justice. Why? What was happening in the first three, four hundred years of Christendom? People were getting slaughtered. They're burning the midnight oil in hiding, trying to duplicate these copies. No legal right to, to copy, to write, to translate, to propagate, disseminate. Fear of being thrown and ripped to pieces by bears and lions in the arena. I understand why there's some spelling errors. It wasn't until the 4th century with Constantine that this was legalised that he then brought together scholars to propagate this thing called the Bible. No wonder there are accidental mistakes. Again, let's look at a classic example here, uh, Matthew 19.24. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Some translations have rope instead of, or cord instead of camel. And in the Greek, as you can see on the screen, what are we talking about? What is the difference? In red, it's a little stroke. A little stroke. Well, guess what? The camel was right. (laughs) Well, think of it this way. I wanted to write this up, but then I realised I'm always running out of time, so I'll just do it ahead of time. This is just an example. Manuscript 1. Jesus, I hash Lord. What does that say? Manuscript 2 says, hash Jesus is Lord. Okay, all right. Well, I can see that manuscript 1 has a J and, and that was an S. Okay, I'm, I'm seeing something here. Manuscript 3 says, Jesus is hash org, Ord. Manuscript 4, Jesus is, well, J-E-S hash S is Lord. The point is, you can have errors and you can still have 100% of the message come through. Make sense? Do you see what all this is saying? Mark these words, if you haven't already. A text with errors can still convey 100% of the meaning, if you have enough. What about intentional variants? Well, they are when scribes reworded something because they wanted to clarify it sometimes. Sometimes they are notes that were made in the margins. You know, you, you make notes in the side of your, your Bible today and if somebody just come along and copy your Bible or back then they copied a manuscript and they, maybe they thought that that was meant to be there and so they incorporated the commentary into the copy that they made. But guess what? 
Sometimes there are inflations of piety too, you know, and we've got um, a lot of questions about the ending of Mark 16, 9 to 20. Happy to talk about that sometime if you'd like to as well. And that's why you'll have brackets around it in your Bible with a footnote saying this is not found in our earliest and best manuscripts. Johnny MacArthur made it there after 45 years of preaching through the New Testament and that was his very final sermon and he says, let me now preach to you the, the part of the Bible which was not in the Bible originally because he approached that as this was not in our best and earliest manuscripts. It made it in a little bit later on and it's been hard to get out since. But again, that's why it is bracketed in your Bibles today if you have a modern translation. And it'll tell you that. We're not hiding that fact. It's not a scandal. And guess what? If you find a, a variant in, say, the 10th, 9th, 10th century, it was new and it was propagated because they had better means of propagating um, or copying manuscripts later on. And so they're rampant from the 9th century on, this particular variation. But then you never find it earlier on. It's, it's not rocket science. Clearly that's been added. But friends, when all of this is said and done, guess what happens? 99% of the 400,000 variants are not even meaningful. We get beaten up with this big 400,000 yardstick and we turn around and we see 99% of them don't actually mean anything because they're trivial language or, or, or spelling nuances like a two-end John versus a one-end John. That's not going to mess with our theology of salvation. And a meaningful, another thing that you know, can't be translated out of the Greek, Greek is a different language. The chronology of words in a sentence a dog bit a man, a man bit a dog. You don't have that. In, in, in English, that means something else because the subject and the object and everything, there's meaning in the chronology there. In the Greek, it doesn't work that way. And so a lot of the variants are actually in the word order of the chronology of certain phrases or verses in the Greek that you can't even translate out and it means nothing in the English. 99% of these 400,000 variants are not even meaningful. Does it say fig, a fig, or and fig? And hey, they didn't even have dictionaries back then. There was no standard of spelling. Give them a break. That leaves us with 1% of 400,000 variants, which is 4,000, uh, 4,000, 4, which are meaningful variants. And guess what happens here? Even then, half of these are obvious accidental errors, slips of the pen. Thou shalt commit adultery. Please don't take that out of context. <laughs> Obvious accidental errors. That leaves us now with 2,000.5 of a percent that are meaningful, which is a very different story to what we've seen before, isn't it? But even then, not one of these variations affect a single doctrine of Christianity or any of our theological rigour or understanding and what we believe as Christians. You know, again, this is the difference between a rope and a camel. There is a meaningful difference between a rope and a camel. They mean different things. And let's say that we're all wrong. And it was never a camel, even though that's not what the manuscripts say. Let's say it was actually a rope. In the context of the corpus of the rest of the New Testament and teaching, 
Is that going to change one bit? Did that, if you knew that, would you not have come to church this morning? I wish I was joking, but this is why some of these people, uh, one of the world's best today, um, Dr. Bart Ehrman, he calls himself a happy agnostic. He was an evangelical, studied at the school my mother did, Wheaton College in the US, then went on to um, Princeton University. I think he got his PhD there, and during the course of his PhD, he was struggling with trying to understand a particular passage in the book of Mark, and he could not reconcile it. He went to his professor, and his professor said, but maybe it's a mistake opened up the crack, broke his inerrant understanding of the scriptures, down came the walls, could not believe anything. Again, not one single of these variations affects how you wake up in the morning and what you believe and who you are and what you're called to do as a child of God not one, don't take my word for it, what do I know? I'm just Dave Dean. Listen to D.A. Carson. Nothing we believe to be doctrinally true and nothing we are commanded to do is in any way jeopardised by the variance. This is true for any textual tradition. The interpretation of individual passages may well be called into question. Rope, camel. But never is a doctrine affected. Or reformed apologist Dr. James White, and I love how hard this is, because it needs and it needs to be harder, what he says here. The simple fact of the matter is no textual variance in either the Old or New Testament in any way, shape or form, materially disrupt or destroy any essential doctrine of the Christian faith. That is a fact that any semi-partial review will substantiate. I would call what I did last year a semi-partial review. You're only talking four months of my time. Hardly 40, 50, 60 years worth of what some of these other guys have been doing in you know, Oxford and Cambridge and things like that. And I'm finding this out. Do you see why I'm so pumped about this? This is where the quantity of manuscripts comes home as the hero and qualifies our manuscripts. This is the step two process and how they come up and they join together. We can know what was, we can qualify what was originally written because of the quantity that we have. It's because we have so much by the way of manuscript evidence. It's because we have so many variants like this. We can actually work out what the heck is going on. Remember that sea of doubt that I was uh, getting smashed in? Well, with a little bit of concentration now, 40, 50 minutes, look how far we've come. We're getting fresh air again. And this is, again, the only, only the first witness to the stand, and we haven't even sounded him out properly. But if, if we just want to hit pause to our first witness, the evidence, existing manuscript evidence, say thank you, brother, for what you've just said in this courtroom trial that we're in right now. And if I just you know, go into my tea break and I walk past the other nine E's and I just have a quick day to each one of them and what they have to say, let me just list what they would say to you real quick. Early records based on the name of emperors and places that we can cross-check in history. You know, in Paul's letter to Timothy, he talks about Jerusalem, for example. Clearly, because the way he talks about Jerusalem, Jerusalem was not destroyed yet. That means that his record had to have been written to Timothy before AD 70. Early records 
Second E. Third E, eyewitness accounts of the risen Lord Jesus. 500 at one time. We can go through all of that in Corinthians. Terry can sort that out later. Embarrassing testimonies like Peter looking like a rooster or Paul arguing with Barnabas or the very fact that Jesus appeared to women first and that is recorded in the Bible. That is not cool back in Old Testament documentation or, um, sorry, not Old Testament, back in ancient times when the testimony of women in a court of law did not hold as much weight as a man. You just wouldn't make that up. Embarrassing testimony, expected occurrences, things like prophecy. Look at the book of Daniel. This is just a nail in the coffin for me. We have, even if you don't believe that it was written, uh, you know, 5th, 6th century BC, uh, as I would say conservative scholarship does based on the time that Daniel lived, even if you throw that out of the water and say it was written in the 2nd century BC, like all of the liberal scholars, you still have to recognise the fact that he's talking about the rise and fall of Greece, okay, well that was around the 2nd century so you're not convinced yet, but then he talks about this big bad iron kingdom, Rome. It's still prophetic, even by liberal standards, okay? Prophetic schema, or what about Psalm 22, written by King David a thousand years before Jesus about crucifixion and crucifixion hadn't even been invented yet. A thousand years before the Roman Empire came and invented the barbaric, excruciating ordeal called crucifixion. Excruciating devotion of those who are willing to be killed for their witness to the gospel. You just go through the apostles and you watch what they went through. Boiled in oil, flayed, run through with a pine branch, thrown off a mountain, beheaded. Horrific. Extra biblical documentation of Jewish historians like Josephus. Did you know that we have 10 non Christian writers who mention Jesus within 150 years of his life, and we only have nine that mention the Roman emperor? Tiberius Caesar. So by testimony of the non-Christians alone, we have more evidence that Jesus Christ lived than the Roman emperor Tiberius Caesar. Enemy referrals like the Roman historian Tacitus, who was by no means a friend of Christianity, and the Jewish writings of the Talmud. Excavated remains, we've talked a little bit about this, from archaeology, which has only ever silenced the critics and proven the Bible right time and time and time again. Don't believe the memes you read online, truly. They are an embarrassment to any intellectually respectable critical mind everyday experiences and I've left this one to last because it is purely subjective and it's not that convincing if this is all I use to share with you but unless it can be demonstrated that I have a serious psychological deficiency it seems to me that I'm perfectly reasonable to believe this text upon the basis of what I believe it says is true about the world I live in the human condition and life Some of the best minds in the history of humanity were believers. We've got to get on, we've got to get past level one hashtag deluded slogans. Delusions. Delusions is a powerful thing. It's a Freudian slip because anyone who says it's a psychological comfort for you that you're a Christian, you could turn around and say, well, it's a psychological comfort for you that you're not. Let's move on to something that's more substantial. I actually went back and reread some of that stuff that had shaken me up early on after I went through all of this ordeal. And I kid you not, and I say this with such confidence and thankfulness in my heart, and I hope I'm not coming across as arrogant. But I read this guy, and I remember putting it down, and I thought, is that it? Is that it? Is that the best of the best of the best? 
Listen to what former professor of law at Harvard University, Simon Greenleaf, one of the most influential thinkers of his day and on the judicial systems in the West to this day, listen to what he had to say. He was challenged to go apply his law knowledge to the Bible to disprove it or prove it, and he ended up becoming a Christian in the process. Listen to this. All that Christianity asks of men on this subject is that they would be consistent with themselves, that they would treat its evidence as they treat the evidence of other writings, and that they would try and judge its actors and witnesses as they deal with their fellow men when testifying to human affairs and actions in human tribunals. Let the witness be compared with themselves, with each other, and with surrounding facts and circumstances, and let their testimony be sifted as if it were given in a court of justice, On the side of the adverse party, the witness being subjected to rigorous cross-examination, the result is confidently believed will be an undoubting conviction of the integrity, ability and truth. He's referring to the Bible. Or a little closer to home, Senior Professor of Law at Newcastle University, Dr Neil J. Foster, put the resurrection of Jesus Christ as presented in the New Testament Gospels through the Australian legal system. Listen to what he had to say. In conclusion, in relation to the documents of the New Testament, we have a large and absolutely convincing body of evidence that shows that what we have access to here in these texts is what was originally written. Through the large numbers of copies of the documents that are available, we have enough copies and enough copies from the early different sources and places to have confidence that we can read today what was written originally in the first century. That's an Australian professor of law concluding that upon the basis of the legal system in our nation. You know, people often say, well, I can't believe the Bible because extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Friends, if you need that, it's here. It's it's a false argument, by the way, because that's not the way things work. You don't need extraordinary evidence for extraordinary claims. Everything that happens for the first time is an extraordinary event that may not have a lot of evidence. But if that's the way you want to reason, know that we have it here in the text of the New Testament. For thousands and thousands of years, the Bible has been scrutinised, it has been interrogated, it has been beaten and bloodied, people have died, and here it is in my hands today. The issue is not if God preserved his word. The issue is how God preserved his word. And I quote, If the most widely documented ancient literary collection with the earliest attestation is insufficient to accurately communicate to us the words of men of the past, then clearly we must throw out everything we have claimed to know about history. The onus is on the sceptic. The New Testament sets the standard, providing clear evidence of its trustworthiness. If that is not enough, if if it is possible that the sceptic is denying it upon that basis, if that is your claim, if this is not enough, if you cannot be convinced on what we have here because it does not appeal to your standard, is it possible that you have set a standard that's just not realistic and too high? I need 5,851 manuscripts that don't vary. Xerox, 1949. I'm sorry. This is not reality. This is not history. And you have set a standard that, one, you don't live by, and two, 
no ancient historical literature or history as an as a discipline lives by. This is not the way we function. It is a false standard that you have set for yourselves. Again, what does this tell us? This brings us full circle. In the face of evidence, why should I believe the Bible? You should believe the Bible if it's true. In the face of this evidence, and you still do not believe, and again, we haven't scratched the surface, so I'm not expecting this to be convincing today. It's just a springboard. If you still do not believe, what does that tell us? I want to suggest it tells you it's not a problem with the answers to your questions, it's a problem with the questioner. It's not a problem with the logic or the reason or the evidence that we bring forward in our answer of that question, why should I believe the Bible? It's the problem of the heart of the individual who is asking the question. And if you claim that this is truth all along with me, as I know many of you here do, then know with full confidence that this text that you hold in your hands today is an accurate English translation of the original text as it was given from God through man onto the page. That is why us at Calvary Chapel, I love Calvary Chapel because of this distinctive, we are so committed to verse by verse exposition systematically from the beginning to the end of this Bible. We don't start in three chapters and then move to another again we all have different approaches i'm not criticizing those i'm just saying this is why we are committed to moving from the first book of the john's gospel right through the last the first chapter right through to the last chapter in order because we believe that there is a purpose in the divine revelation and inspiration of the chronology of john's gospel we move through it in order we go through it in verse because we hold in high regard and with full confidence that what this is today, what we go through every day uh, here on a Sunday, is the words of God as they were originally revealed. Remember, Theodonistos, God breathed. It's like that, that guy that you're talking with, the coffee, you can smell it when you're having that conversation. No sacrilege, but it's like that with God. When you, are, when, when you read this text, when you go home tonight and you are thankful that you don't have that seventh commandment as you're doing your devotions and you're sitting around and you're like, wow, this is incredible. Know that this is the word of God breathed out to you. He's talking to you. This is his message to you. This is his letter to you. And you can know with full confidence that is the case. This is the truth. And as Churchill said, truth is incontrovertible. Malice may attack it. Ignorance may deride it. But in the end, there it is. I'm going to close with a very short quote and then we're going to pray and sing and thank God for this text that we have and the preservation of it. Listen to this. Bernard Ram. This is how I led into my paper, by the way. A thousand times over, the death knell of the Bible has been sounded. The funeral procession formed. The inscription cut on the tombstone and committal read. But somehow the corpse never stays put. Let's pray. Father, the, uh, the battle, the battle rages on. The battle for the Bible, the battle for the believability of your word rages on. Lord, you know this from your place more than any. You know that for two millennia now, our brothers and sisters have bled and died, have fought 
are being torn apart for their conviction regarding the veracity of the Bible, for the, their persistent devotion in transmitting the Bible. We have not faced those horrors today. We do not stand in an arena in front of a starved beast for our belief and our possession of your word. But we do battle. We do battle. The guns of anti-Christian rhetoric blaze, continuing in their exchange of the truth for lie. Father, in this modern fray, may we as a church, as a humble little arm of your body, just be that embassy in a foreign land that knows its resolve, that is anchored, steadfast, unmoved, unshaken, anchored in the rock of your word, for it is truth. We don't know everything we want to know, Lord, about your word. But the more we know, Father, the more it is affirmed. It cannot be broken. I can sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible has been transmitted down to this day faithfully to tell me so. May we actually own this as your children. No longer see this as a stumbling block, but a stepping stone in our walk with you, in our confidence in who we are as your people and who you are as our God and Saviour and Lord. Amen. Lord.